0: Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web design and development with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we are going to be talking about when and why to adopt new technologies. So I'm so excited to have a special co-host here, Brad Garpe. Brad, welcome.
1: Hey, what's going on?
0: You are a frequent co-host and we got to hang out in person. And of course, my name is Amy Dutton. I am the director of design at Zeal.
1: And like Amy said, my name is Brad Garropy. I'm a developer experience engineer at Atlassian. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even at a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode
0: of Compress. Awesome. And today we are joined by a special sponsor in daily.dev, So if you are unfamiliar, definitely go check them out. So it is a Chrome extension. So when I load up a new tab or a new window of Chrome, this extension will load the latest and greatest news. And it will also kind of get an idea for the pieces of information that you are interested in and it will help filter that. So it's showing you the most relevant. So definitely go check it out. It's a great way to stay on top of things happening in the industry because it's moves fast it's hard to know what is coming out.
1: You know, speaking of Chrome extensions, how about I derail right at the beginning of this yes, episode? Please. I just installed Arc browser this morning. Uh, oh, yeah. I got my invite. I was on the wait list. And yes. I haven't really barely done anything, but like I got it set up and configured and like just everything is on the left hand side instead of the top bar. So it's uh
0: huh. pretty interesting. Getting used to. Yeah, yeah. for sure. We had Ben Holmes on a few weeks ago and he actually made it his pick. It was the first time I'd heard about it. So I have one. If somebody wants to DM me, I have a few invites I'm happy to share. So you can reach out to me on self-teach me on Twitter. But I think one of the things that is most interesting to me is we've had browsers for 20-something, 30-something years And it's hard to do something different. We think about browsers in a specific way and we have specific use cases for them. So it's interesting to have a company come along and say, you know what, we're going to mix things up and try and experiment with, say, putting everything on the left or not showing a URL bar at all.
1: Yeah, I actually heard some reasoning behind why they did what they did. Um, Oh, really? I actually heard that like the newer generations aren't very familiar with like files and directories on like a desktop or like a file explorer uh-huh. instead they kind of view applications or tabs as like their own kind of application Interesting. and so they kind of treat that as the unit of work in the browser and they're like your tabs are your apps pretty much
0: hmm. that's fascinating i <laughs> i could guess about you brad but are you one that has one tab or five million tabs because I feel like there's two types of people in the world. <laughs>
1: first, I want to hear your guess first.
0: <laughs> I feel like you're like a one, two tab person.
1: That's right. 100%. <laughs> yep. I'm like, try to be focused, get the info I need, close them out
0: would you like to take a guess for what type of person i am
1: (laughs) i saw your computer at that conference it scared me to be honest amy has like a thousand tabs open Uh,
0: i know and people are like just open multiple windows i'm like i do have multiple windows multiple windows with like dozens of tabs
1: yeah i definitely have two browser windows open pretty much at all times and then like each one of them has like two or three tabs
0: okay do you use profiles
1: like tab groups or
0: um no like so in chrome i can like log in as a different user oh, in different yes. browsers. i've got
1: i've got okay. my like work browser work profile okay. and my personal profile and then even in there i split them up into tab groups okay uh, i think just the management of all this stuff is what's gonna sell me on arc it's gonna feel mm-hmm. better to manage my tabs in those spaces and you've got your more permanent tabs and your temporary tabs which is exactly how i view this if i'm like learning about something or trying to find an answer i'll spawn off three or four tabs that take me down a rabbit hole and then arc has like a clear button that's just like just get rid of these temporary tabs i got what i needed
0: okay yeah so you said you you saw my browser usually when on something i have that like if i'm trying to solve a problem i will open up a tab for like multiple stack overflow things i'll go through them and then once i've solved that bug or that problem then i'll clear them all out but yeah i do or sometimes i'll even use it like oh i want to read this article so i'll just leave this tab open until i can come back to it but obviously, there's other systems like instapaper and pocket that will solve that problem
1: yeah. Yeah, for sure. Holding a tab for a while is probably like the the worst way you could do because then it just <laughs> clutters what you're trying to think about at the top.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think Chrome's better now, but it can also be a resource hog.
1: <laughs> yeah. You're
0: like, why is my computer's battery just completely being drained? Oh, okay. yeah.
1: <laughs> so I got to ask then, how do you navigate with like 100 open tabs?
0: See, it's interesting because I still have like a group of tabs that I'm working within even Mm -hmm. though I haven't closed them. So if like I have and I should use the group feature, what you're talking about, because I will visually group them together or have things that relate to each other right next to each other. So even though I have, I don't even want to tell you how many tabs I have open right now, (laughs) but it's still like related things together.
1: And there are shortcuts for like searching tabs. Yes. Like to find it or you can, there's keyboard shortcuts, like go to the previous tab or the next tab. So like you can navigate through them effectively, even
0: if there is a lot of them. Yeah. what's funny. I'm seeing, okay. So I have four Chrome windows open right now. I have one browser window that's pretty dedicated to Stripe and working through that. I have another one that actually does have some Stripe stuff in it too. Some Supa based stuff. I was working through a domain and I also have some Twitter tabs for posting stuff. I have another browser for the stream stuff. And then I have another browser cause I'm working on a, a video. And so I have a bunch of clips that I want to download for this video. And each clip is loaded in a tab. So Man, there's a lot probably about f- at least 40 tabs <laughs> right now <laughs> between the three win- four windows.
1: Uh, one of the things yeah. that I'm trying to not keep open is, Twitter, and YouTube. Oh, yeah. I've just realized at the start of this year, my attention span is absolutely destroyed. And instead of just saying like, oh, I should not be so distracted, or I should probably not do that. I think I'm going to start taking some active steps to fix that. So I reached mm-hmm. out to Scott Talinsky, who is the Thanks. master of locking things down. And he's like, get this app called Focus. It blocks it at an OS level and there's a hardcore mode where <gasps> you can't even turn it off. Like he, He's serious about it. And oh, wow. I kind of want to get to that stage, to be honest.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so that
1: I can really just focus and use the limited time that I have.
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel like we could easily transition because we're talking about, like I mentioned, I have Svelte stuff and Stripe stuff and you know, all these things open and new technologies. But I don't want to skip the intro because I... um. And here's why I can say, I could be really cheesy and say, so Brad, what have you been up to this week? But (laughs) that's kind of, that is cheesy because Brad and I actually got to hang out in person. So I know what he's been up to this week, but we were both at that conference. I know it's a little confusing, but it's called that conference in Austin, Texas, and just had a really great time being in person with other developers and also attending sessions and learning new things and talking to other people and how they're solving problems. So you can also register. They have another event in the summer in the Dells in Wisconsin. And I believe it's also at a Kalahari resort there. So the one in Austin was at Kalahari, which is just a fantastic location. It's the most family friendly conference that I've ever been to. So you can bring your spouse, bring your kids if you have them. Like we ate dinner one night with a family, with a couple of families. So it's just a really great experience, great environment. And the next one I go to, assuming I'm going, I would love to bring my family because I know my kids would have a great time at the water park.
1: Yeah, I think the next that conference that I go to, I think I'm going to try to speak. It'll be my first conference to speak at. And I was like constantly asking people like, what do you know me for? What do you think Uh I'm good at? What knowledge do I have that you want to hear about? So I was just collecting talk ideas as much as possible.
0: That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, and Eric thinking about where to apply to do a talk. So there's a lot of CFPs that are open. You'll hear that occasionally. That means call for papers or CFS, call for speakers. And so you can submit an abstract. It's usually just a couple hundred words about what you like to talk about and different events have different processes for going about picking those applications. And it's great if you can figure out, too, who the event organizer is and even reach out to them because a lot of times they're more than happy to give you feedback on your talk ideas because they want the conference to be the best because that's something that they're hosting and putting together. So the more that they can help you speak into the process, sometimes the better. yeah And Sessionize is really great, too. So you can go in and set up a profile for yourself and different talk topics that you have and submit those to various events. You can also enter keywords and it'll tell you different events that fall under those keywords and when they become open for accepting applications. So, yeah, and uh, think-
1: it's important to note that if you want to speak at that conference specifically, that does not use Sessionize. You need mm-hmm. to submit directly to their website. That's something that Clark, the organizer was very adamant about he's like i want you to be thinking about us when you submit so you can Mm -hmm. think about who we are and what this conference is about
0: so i'm going to include this link as well episode 69 we talked about speaking at conferences and kind of the ins and outs of all that so definitely go check that particular episode out so one of the things that we were talking about at that conference was different technologies and some of the things that like we're even working on personally. So I've been working on migrating my personal site over to Astro so that's selfteach.me. and Brad, you've been working on migrating your site as well.
1: Yep. I'm taking bradgarapi.com from a next and CSS modules based site over to remix and tailwind.
0: Yeah. How's that process been going?
1: Uh, Still focused on the Tailwind migration first, and then I'm going to do the Remix thing because Remix doesn't support CSS modules. However, they've been acquired by Shopify. Mark Diglesch is over there working on the styling story. And guess what? They're going to support CSS modules natively. I think it just released like today. And very soon it's going to support Tailwind out of the box. So it's like all the migration I was doing, I probably didn't have to do it. Mm. But I do think that Tailwind... And the way that it works probably jives better with remixes, server-side rendering and caching strategy. So I think it's going to be a smart move. Not to mention, like, I have some global styles hanging around and I'm trying to change them. And I'm immediately, like, seeing the value of Tailwind. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have global CSS that applies to many pages and it's safer to modify. So I'm feeling good about my choice there. And I think I'm just going to continue on regardless of what kind of support comes to remix
0: yeah and i think kent even announced a feature that dropped today with remix
1: Um, oh yeah what was it
0: yeah it is the defer feature so he said just check it out it is fantastic i don't know what it does or what it means but they just dropped it (laughs) so
1: i mean either uh, uh not really sure what that means
0: since there's a couple comments, I will draw attention to them. So, Ryan just mentioned that he reached for Astro on his capstone project, and Astro is so good. And I definitely agree. And that kind of leads me to the next one. Imposter engineer said, How about SvelteKit? I absolutely love SvelteKit, I love their setup. I know that the routes piece in version 1.0 is a little controversial but I love having actually my pages and components live together. I'm not having to dig through multiple directories to find the parts for a particular file. And I did start to migrate my self-teach-me site over to Sveltecut, but then I was fighting MD specs, constantly trying to get it to style the way that I wanted it to. And if you read a lot of the documentation on MD specs, it is using the old layout version with Svelte kit, it will still run, but it's just harder to find what you're looking for in the documentation because a lot of that's old and outdated. Just felt like I was fighting it the whole time. So then, for this particular project, because it really is static, I don't need tons of state, like really at all. I did reach for Astro on it, and most of that has to do with the markdown support because it gives you all that basically out of the box. You are running an integration, but it's just one line of code and then it just works. So it was really nice how all that fits together. So that's been one of the big things for me switching over is because I want to have all my blog posts and all my content as Markdown files in GitHub. So if somebody finds a typo or wants to make a change, you can issue a pull request, not a big deal. And I love just having all that open source where people can look at it. The one thing that I am kind of bumping up against with Markdown is I just have tons of front matter and trying to get all of that organized and consistent can sometimes be a pain. But even then, Astro is actually, let me check what it's called. There's a feature. It's in experimental mode right now. Actually, Ben announced this particular feature when he was on the show a few weeks ago, but it's called Content Collections. And with this, you can put all of your content in a specific file and you can define TypeScript pieces around the front matter for that and it will tell you like which files are not formatted correctly or if you're missing stuff so it's pretty cool some of the stuff that they're doing
1: yeah i almost started to consider astro thinking like look it is just i'm just writing a static blog essentially mm-hmm. and and i don't need all this stuff but i also like to align my personal website with what i'm building applications mm-hmm. with I, because i use it as like a place to learn so yep you know Remix has a lot more features out of the box than Astro might, or it's capable of a lot more. Yeah. However, at the end of the day, I just wanted practice in it and I'm going to use it. And, you know, it can server side render just fine, which is still great for SEO on my site.
0: Yeah. So this is like the perfect segue because I had to learn Astro. So that's a new technology to me in order to be able to build my site in it. And I think that's one of the great things about having a personal website that you know you will hear people say the best way to learn something new is to build something. And if you listen to Shop Talk Show, a particular podcast, they even have a segment where it's like just build websites. And I would encourage you to just build something because you will run up into things, different error messages and different problems that you might not necessarily see when you're working through a tutorial or through a course. And so that friction that you experience where you're having to go to Stack Overflow or Google or Chat GPT to figure out the answer will help you solve that and become more familiar with that particular technology. So it's a really just a great way to experiment and to learn.
1: Okay, so like 25 minutes in, let's uh, <laughs> start leading into the today's topic. So we were talking about, you know, picking up new tech technologies and migrating our websites to new technologies. But it's really important to consider when and why you decide to make these types of changes. And I'll say this, you know, a lot of times new projects or smaller companies or things that just haven't been around for a while, don't have to think about this. You're just picking the newest, latest, coolest thing off the shelf and you know it's got great performance and great developer experience and you're using it because it's the best option at the time however if you've been in a place where their product has been around for five or ten years or you know the company's older and you're coming into an existing code base you do have to make a lot of difficult decisions around addressing this tech debt when and why to do it and uh, how to jump to new pieces of technology
0: Yeah, for sure. So do you guys have a vetting process at Atlassian?
1: As far as how we choose new things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have this notion of platform teams. So there's a front-end platform team and a back-end platform team. And a lot of times it's these teams who kind of drive the architecture of the front-end or the back-end. And so they kind of maintain this document that we actually call like some kind of like manifesto of like if we were to start fresh today what kind of tech would we be using and they just keep like a list of tech that sounds good and is popular and is a good fit for the application in kind of like a three-year roadmap kind of write down how they think we might get there
0: interesting so at zeal we have historically been a rails and react shop and so one of the things that we have been moving towards is Redwood. And one of the reasons that we reached for Redwood over SvelteKit, because I love both, but at the time SvelteKit was still in beta. It hadn't hit version 1.0. So that was a thing, but also with Redwood, it has React. So that's what we were already using. And then the founders have a Rails background. And so a lot of those pieces were similar to stuff and methodologies and things like patterns that we were already used to. So it made sense to reach for Redwood in this particular case.
1: Yeah, for us over at Trello, Trello is a lot of things. They used to be CoffeeScript, then it got migrated to Backbone. And now we're trying to move everything into React. And I know that might be shocking to hear. People are like, wait, it's not even a real React app. But that just goes to show you the age of a product and the effort that it takes to move it from one technology to another. It's not as simple as, you know, recoding your personal website. It takes a lot of thought and effort on how to do these types of large migrations.
0: So at what point do you guys decide, like, we need to move? Like, why Why should a company move, especially a large enterprise company?
1: Yeah, I may not be able to speak towards exactly why Trello would make these decisions, but I can say what i think in general i really think the first factor is like we are literally outgrowing this technology it is becoming too slow for the number of things that we're throwing at it like for instance you know react is still pretty dang quick for what it is but we know that it is a little bit slower than something like svelte which relies on vanilla javascript and making mutations directly to the page no virtual dom no re-rendering none of that stuff So at a certain point, React will become slower than something like Svelte that's compiled. And it takes a really big application with a lot of data to get to these points. But that's why it's always good to be experimenting a little bit with possible new technologies, So you know what that cliff is for you and your team. Sometimes it's hard to tell. It really is. But if you keep like good metrics or analytics, maybe that's a good sign.
0: I appreciate the perspective that you're able to bring because this is something that we were even talking about at that conference this week is, you know, I can test all these different things. I can create demo projects and I can do client projects. And in a lot of cases, my clients have a very specific use case. But when you're talking about enterprise products and applications, it's a whole different ballgame because not only are you having to think about a contingency plan? How do we handle these legacy pieces? How do we migrate everybody over to this new technology? How do we reduce downtime? But there's so much investment in other places in your app that trying to convert all of that over becomes a very unique problem that it's not something that Stack Overflow can easily solve.
1: Yeah, like problems like that, are what make really great conference talks. Uh, Mm -hmm. How like a team overcame such a big challenge. And that's the stuff that I'm becoming more and more interested in. You know, I'm to the point where learning new stuff isn't that hard. It's about applying what I've learned to make changes in big applications.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a big piece in learning new tech that helps with the developer experience. There's a lot of things that make it easier for developers. And so that's another incentive that you have to think about is it's not just the end user, the person that's consuming and using the application, but it's also the developers. You're going to lose developers if you have all of your apps in like Cobalt or Haskell or something like that, because nobody wants to write in that anymore.
1: Yeah, could you imagine like you're not out there typing those keywords into like LinkedIn or Indeed or whatever to try to go get a job over there with some old technology. You want to attract like the best developers with the best to newest frameworks.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure.
1: And yeah, like as tools evolve in a space, they just get better. You know, they are easier to work with or they produce a smaller or faster output. And I think that's just technology advancing. Like you kind of have to keep up. Just like all these JavaScript tools are switching over to Rust, you know, there is big incentive to move over to that. Like there are true metrics in developer productivity where if you can save so much time, you are like literally saving the company gazillions of dollars just because your thing compiles like 30% faster. And so Mm -hmm. if if your team, if your platform teams or your tooling teams, your DevOps teams can quantify this, like that's how you convince management is to say we can improve speed by X percent by switching to this new stack.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, do you guys have a certain like framework or way that you actually do a migration if you're trying to change something out?
1: I think probably the first step is experimentation with the tool. Like somebody during some kind of innovation week or hackathon says, "I just want to see if I can fit this square peg into this round hole. Like mm-hmm. let me just see if ES build can get something, anything to compile in our application, let's say." And once you know it's possible, and once you know it, it can fit, then you kind of have to go down the rabbit hole of making a plan. And I think that's really important. You don't just start this gigantic migration. You have to make a plan that says, these are how many files we have to touch. Even if you don't ha- you don't say like how hard it's going to be per file, because obviously some are going to be way harder. But it's more like, if I can say exactly how many, then you can kind of have a burn down chart. And that's really important to show progress. Because Mm -hmm. I think biggest problem in large migrations is that it feels like they go on forever. Mm -hmm. So you have to know if you're making progress and how the teams are moving forward. That sells it to management. And it kind of keeps everybody's motivation high. Like, hey, guys, we got through that first 20% really fast. Or yeah, we're really dragging in the last 20%. It shows speed. And it's important.
0: Yeah, I can provide just a little bit of context. Obviously, different companies have different flavors for this. So I'd be interested to hear what your experience is at Elasian, But at Zeal, what will happen is somebody will write a story. And so that'll try and be scoped to something that's generally pretty small and actionable. And then the lead or the project manager will help write those stories. The lead will definitely speak into that to make sure that those things are actionable. It's phrased in the right way that the questions are answered. There's strong acceptance criteria. And then the team that's actually doing the development work, they'll vote on, well, kind of vote, but they'll basically, it's called pointing poker. That's one of the, I guess the ways that we call it, but you all say, this is how many points that I think it'll be. And we use the Fibonacci sequence. So it's a one, two, three, five, seven. Is that seven? The next one? no, eight, sorry, eight would be the next point. But if you hit eight, and the reason this is why I stumbled over eight is because that is a signal that you need to break that story down, even five. We try not to have any five-point stories. Occasionally, that'll happen. But the smaller the story, the better. And some of it is because it's easier to test. It's easier to review that code. It's easier to merge it in without any breaking changes. But also, just feels good. You're able to crank through more stories faster. And so... After several weeks, usually like two or three weeks, depending on how long your sprints are, we like to do one week sprints. And you get an idea for how many points were finished during that week. And we try not to have too much pressure on you have to have, say, like 10 points per week or whatever. It's just whatever it takes to get the task done. It's hard to a lot of times guess how much time it takes, but it's a lot easier to guess effort and estimate around effort. So if I say we have five developers, they're all able to say, accomplish 10 points in a week, then our velocity is 50 points a week. And then that makes it easier as you go through and estimate other tickets to know about this is how long it's going to take us to finish this project because we have this historical data. And obviously, anytime you add or remove somebody to the project, that is going to affect not only velocity, but how you point. Because really, you start to point as a team because you understand this is the frame of reference that we've used in the past in order to be able to point something in the future.
1: I do hate estimation, though, because I do feel <laughs> like as soon as you say a number, you are like gun to the head held to that number. You know what uh-huh. I mean? And it's rough, but you do have to find some way to communicate. We think it's going to take about this long to finish this migration. Yeah. Why? You know, because if you say we can save 30% of developer time or speed this up by 30%, you can measure what that means. In minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you can equate that to like how many developer weeks it's going to take to actually finish this. And you can balance it out. How long is it going to take to get your return on investment? These are very managerial mm-hmm. uh, points of views. But when managers have to balance features for tech debt, it becomes, you know, a very important discussion.
0: Yeah. So, A lot of times we even categorize, say, tech debt. So that would include like leveling up. A big thing that I feel like we bump into sometimes is trying to up the version of Rails. New version of Rails came out, we need to upgrade. And so that particular thing is considered a chore. And so we don't always point chores within our projects because you're not really creating a feature. You're just like maintaining the status quo.
1: You gotta. And these are like mini upgrades in and of themselves, because what happens you get bug fixes which is going to save you time from mm-hmm. fixing you know fixing framework related bugs or whatnot usually they make things smaller faster more performant and so that's exactly what you'd be doing if you were jumping frameworks but on a more micro level you're just getting this for free just by mm-hmm. you know updating and using these new features so yeah that kind of stuff there's no reason not to do that and i also don't even think things like that need like manager buy in like i think updating dependencies is now pretty well known amongst managers and product leads that you have to do it if not only for you know security flaws for all the other performance benefits you can gain
0: yeah for sure a lot of times when you're talking about okay when is a good time to upgrade <laughs> there's always stuff that needs to be built. And people would rather have shiny new features than, oh, yeah, you can't tell the difference that was made on the back end, but it's just better. (laughs) So it's like trying to change sometimes the wheel of the car while it's still moving forward.
1: Yeah. And a lot of times you'll get the engineers saying like, we have a lot of tech debt that we really need to take care of. And engineers Mm -hmm. have a better sense of what it feels like as it's piling up. And you're trying to convince your manager or product lead to give you time for this. I would say, luckily, we have this built in a little bit. We have these ticket budgets. And so our tickets are categorized as like more feature development or project work or like the chore type stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we have this breakdown of like, we should be doing this much feature development, this much bug fixing, and this much chore type work. And that's good because instead of like, having to stop feature work altogether or something like that to jump onto like some technology migration. You have that kind of time built into your week, built into your day where it's like, I know I feel okay committing to this work because my manager has bought into that all the time, not just for this one project.
0: Yeah. That's great though, that that's included. It's not like you're having to fight for it. Like you just did a migration two months ago. Now we got to do another one and try right. to make a use case for it.
1: Right. Now, of course, this does make, you know, progress on large migrations slow. You're doing a little bit of work constantly instead of a big focused effort. So sometimes we see things shift where a chore becomes a project to say, we're 80% of the way through. This last stuff is a little bit hard. We're all going to push as a team and consider this our main project for like, Two or three weeks to get it done.
0: Have you ever adopted a new technology too early?
1: Yes, Uh, (laughs) I I think one sticks out for me. I jumped onto Svelte and made an app and posted on the Google Play Store before SvelteKit even existed.
0: That's awesome. So, like,
1: this was Svelte with like some random router. Like, it was very, very, very new. I just wanted to learn it.
0: Sapper. Or is it like before Sapper?
1: I was even before Sapper. Oh. (laughs) So I was just doing a lot of stuff myself. And I like really regretted that because it was such a struggle. There wasn't enough documentation. The community Mm -hmm. wasn't great, you know, so like you couldn't go anywhere for help. And it felt lonely trying to, you know, build with this new technology. So my two cents is that I don't necessarily wait for any specific version number, you know, 1.0 or anything, but you can feel when the momentum has built up enough and there's enough community around it where you're like, okay, I know enough people who are talking about this that I can at least ping somebody on Twitter to get an answer to my question.
0: Right, right. I'm going to point this out because I think it's hilarious. (laughs) Eric called you Brad the trailblazer. I would like to even shorten that to say Brad the blazer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. Uh,
0: Hilarious. I think the big thing for me, and we'll probably talk more about this later, is been. The spelt kit piece of it. And I wouldn't say that I was necessarily too early because I feel like the timing has been really good for, say, the Everything Spelt course. Somebody had asked about that earlier. But what it meant was we've had to re record lessons that were already recorded and released because they changed how their whole routing structure was done. And so having to rework all the layouts. So I probably re recorded at least 20 videos trying to get everything right. Because I mean, who wants to? come to a course that's just like, oh, this course is new. And it's like, oh, but it's already outdated. (laughs) The information doesn't apply anymore. Nobody wants that. So just trying to keep everything updated has been a little bit of a challenge. But I will say this, the nice thing when it comes to course development is there isn't a ton of resources that are out there. And so for people to be like, oh, I want to learn spell. where should I go? What should I look for? There's not like huge courses. There's, you know, you can watch a YouTube video here or there, but to say, oh yeah, everything's felt. There's a hundred videos there of how to do testing, how to handle Stripe, how to send emails, like how to do all these things. That's great that it's all packaged together. And so I feel like for that piece of it, the timing is very good. And so even to the point where it has me thinking about other technologies that are new, that don't necessarily have the community or the documentation around it, the problems that you are encountering from an education standpoint, how can I address that? So a slightly different use case when you're not talking about supporting an app, but trying to provide information.
1: Yeah. And it's also just a smart like business type decision. If you're trying to make money off of something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, to get in early and be, you know, one of the big figures of that technology is well worth it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's also a bet. So For example, I have a course on level up tutorials for Keystone JS, which I love Keystone. I think it's a great framework, but it hasn't seen the kind of adoption that a lot of other frameworks and technologies have had. So yes, it is going to serve a niche, but it is a very small niche.
1: Okay. So let's say we're going to take on like a big rewrite, a big refactor, you know, swap one technology for another. Do you have any suggestions on strategy for how to get it done?
0: Oh, man. Well, I think some of the things that you've already talked about still apply. You're still going to want to write stories. You're still going to tackle all those pieces. And it's like, yeah, how do you eat an elephant? You just take it one chunk at a time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, as you're planning out those stories, and as you make your plan, if you can convert bigger tickets into smaller tickets, you're going to be way more successful. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to be taking giant leaps every time. You want lots of tiny, tiny steps. They're easier to do. They're easier to accomplish. And like it keeps that momentum high.
0: For sure. Now, one exception, maybe not even an exception, when you're talking about, say, like adding TypeScript to a project, the nice thing about TypeScript is you can change your TS config so that it's not strict. So you can migrate portions of your project over without having to say, I'm going to rewrite my entire code base.
1: Yes, if you so I think the term there is incremental. If you can mm-hmm. incrementally adopt something, that is far, far, far easier than, you know, wholesale like switching frameworks. Then again, even frameworks you can incrementally adopt, but you have to do some crazy things to get that to happen. <laughs> Meaning you're slicing your app to say some pages are served like this and some served like this. But yeah, TypeScript is super great for incremental adoption. And I will say this. Trello's in a really interesting spot right now. We we want to make lots of big, you know, changes to the application. We want to swap backbone for React. But we're not fully TypeScript and we're lacking a lot of test coverage. So before you even consider making these large changes, you have to know that you're not going to break anything. So that means number one, getting your test coverage up to snuff. I don't care what kind, it doesn't matter. You know, spend some some time improving your test coverage and to TypeScript, all the things because man, that like, super, super, super helps at the interfaces. If you're making a change, you know, you're satisfying that interface, you are confident that what you're doing is going to map to the things you're hooking it up with. Gotta got to do those things first, they They're table stakes to make you feel confident in any other changes you're going to make after that
0: testing makes all the difference. And I'll explain my snapshot joke. A snapshot test will take a snapshot of your code. And then if anything changes, your test will fail because it says, hey, it doesn't match the snapshot what happened. So it's really only good for like flagging if your code changes. But a lot of times, you know, if your code changes, so the test isn't as helpful as other tests might be.
1: So instead of doing all the work manually, A lot of times there are code mods for things like, you know, JavaScript to TypeScript or moving Mm. from, let's say, even common JS to ES modules. You can run a little code mod and it'll make a bunch of changes for you. Again, if the tests are in place, you can kind of confirm that that worked or didn't work. And you can always start the code mod on a file or two, check out, you know, what it looks like. Obviously, there's edge cases that it's not going to catch. But that's one really great way to kind of try to automate away all of the Mm -hmm. manual work that it's going to take to do this thing over and over again repetitively.
0: Yeah, and that does bring up a good point. So we've kind of given SvelteKit a little bit of a hard time, but when they changed their router, they did release a command line tool that would go in and rename all of your files for your routes directory to get everything in line with their new setup.
1: Yeah, and even React has released code mods in the past, like going from class what was it like class-based components over to function-based components. Mm -hmm. And I think they made a code mod for the typing, the child props that they now Mm -hmm. require and things like that. You know, a library is very advanced if Mm -hmm. they're releasing code mods to help you upgrade from major release to major release.
0: Yeah. Next JS release version 13. That one was really interesting because they have a pages directory that is basically a file-based routing system. So if I have a file in there named about.js or about.ts, then I have a route. So I can on my website and go to slash about. And with their new release, their app directory is more similar to SvelteKit, where it's a folder-based routing system. Mm-hmm. So every route, I don't remember for next specifically, but like with SvelteKit, it's plus page.svelte. So the folder name determines what that path is. And so for Next, by putting that in a completely different folder, by having that app directory versus that pages directory, they're able to support both setups depending on how somebody wants to use the application or the really the framework, which is very interesting. And within their command line, when it's building the project out, it will tell you, wait, you have competing path. So you have a path established in app and you have the same path established in your pages directory. You need to figure that out.
1: Yeah, and that, that's great. That's really great support for being able to incrementally adopt a new pattern, right? So mm-hmm. you can do some in the app directory or some in the old pages directory like the way they had it. So that's a really effective way to help people move to the new thing without just cutting them off.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, one thing that I want to share a little bit about is how you tackle these from a team point of view, from an organizational point of view. Like I said, at Trello, we've got like a front-end platform team and a back-end platform team. And a lot of times you can't expect a team to do a migration that is so large just by themselves. Like it would take the whole team a long time to, you know, go into everybody's code, the whole app's code, even code Mm -hmm. that other teams own and make the changes themselves. They don't have the domain knowledge necessarily in the other team's code. And it's just going to suck up all that one team's time. So I personally think when you do a migration, you should spearhead it with a single team. You know, that single team will, will do the kind of the proof of concept and they'll lay out the plan, but then you have to work with other teams across your organization to migrate their code. So a lot of what we've done at Trello is the team who's spearheading this, the platform teams will invent code mods and pass them out to other teams and Mm. say, Hey, you know, you know, your code better than we do run these code mods or follow this document on how to make these changes. And we'll all get it done together in our 20%, you know, chore time. Mm. Cause I just don't think at a particular scale, a single team can take on migrations so large.
0: Yeah. That kind of makes the case too, for like these microservices and tinier packages where you can, kind of hand that code off to something else, like another service, and it will do whatever. So then in a use case where you are trying to upgrade, you can do it incrementally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Eric had a great term for this. I totally blanked on that. Yeah. Tiger team is a good way to describe the team that is spearheading the effort.
0: One thing, so you do have this listed in the notes. We talked a lot about like JavaScript-y things, but also just trying to migrate over libraries with CSS modules, say to Tailwind, you're doing that right now with your personal site. I think one of the benefits that I found in using Tailwind is I'm doing the migration for my site is I'm able to just pull out these chunks of HTML and the styles come with it, which again, makes the perfect use case for Tailwind. So I just want to point out, it's not just JavaScript, it can also be CSS.
1: Yeah. And actually, we were also talking about doing some migrations with Brian Morrison at that conference. And we were talking about how it's kind of smart to separate your app logic, your business logic mm-hmm. per se, from your framework and the rendering of that data. So if you could imagine like you just have some utils folder that does everything that your app needs to do, whether it's creating a workout object or mutating your you know to-do list or whatever, all of that stays there. And then these helper functions just hand data to your front-end framework, Next.js, mm-hmm. you know, Remix, React, anything, whatever. And there's a nice split there. So you can imagine if you go to change frameworks, you don't have to like untangle all of your app logic that's sitting inside of your front-end framework. You just have these raw, plain, vanilla JavaScript methods that do what you really need to do, the critical things in your application. And you hand it to the new front-end framework.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you have client projects where it makes sense, obviously you don't want to break an NDA, but you can even take these libraries sometimes and go from one client project to the next.
1: Yeah. And the more I think you focus on separating that stuff out, the more you'll find opportunities to say, oh, I could just make an NPM package out of this, to be Mm -hmm. honest, or -hmm. maybe create patterns around how you access data and standardize that. And then it starts to feel pretty cross-cutting.
0: Yeah, very cool. Did you have any other words of wisdom before we get into picks and plugs?
1: I think that's all I got. I got to say doing big migrations is probably like the majority of work at large companies. Mm. You know, they're either churning out features or making these big migrations to to make things faster and better. And it's really difficult. And it takes the cooperation of like many teams and many managers. And there's Mm -hmm. lots of discussion there.
0: Yeah. And I I think
1: this is the hardest thing in in the industry at this point.
0: Yeah. I'm glad we talked about it because I think people miss that a lot of times. The fun part is always starting something new where you're like, I know every line of code that was written. I know exactly how stuff is, was created but when you're joining another team, that's really an edge case. You don't. We call it a greenfield project where you come into the project and it's everything's green, like you the wide open spaces. You can pick all the technology that what you want to use. But for the most part, it's brownfield. <laughs> you're coming in <laughs> and having to make sense of somebody else's work. So.
1: I was lucky enough to join a Greenfield organization, an entire brand new organization wow. at Adobe. And so I got to spin up two apps from the ground up and it was so much fun. Wow. And then joined I'm Atlassian. surprised that's at,
0: at Adobe. Because usually yeah. you're like, oh, where are you at a startup? But yeah. you're at Adobe. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. yeah, and look out for those opportunities. A lot of times where there's like a surge in hiring at a company, they're probably trying to spin up a new project or a new area So keep your eyes peeled for something like that. If there's like 20 positions open, you're like, oh, this could be a fun new thing to work at, at a bigger, older company.
0: Mm -hmm. So the next section of the episode is our picks and plugs section where we pick something that we like and we plug something that generally we worked on or we're excited about. So Brad, do you have any picks and plugs for us?
1: I probably have too many picks. I'll like hone in on one, but okay tell the whole story so for christmas i decided to kind of migrate from google and pixel stuff over to everything apple yeah so i got the airpods the watch the phone the apple tv like everything yes and i didn't think it would be as satisfying as it actually (laughs) is like dang that stuff works so good together um (laughs) And, you know, I should say like I was Apple in the past and I jump ship to Google Pixel before like the watch even existed or before the AirPods even existed. So like at th- at that point, it was like phone versus phone. But as these new pieces of hardware come out, mm-hmm. it just made Apple more and more and more appealing because everything works together so good. And everything works together with all of my wife's stuff too. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think my favorite thing... Specifically, which I'm going to plug is my Apple Watch Series 8. I think having cell on your wrist and getting like messages or notifications, even if your phone is left behind, is super valuable. Mm-hmm. And you're being like informed without like being distracted, meaning yeah. like, guess what's on my phone? Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. <laughs> That's not on my watch. You know, yeah. I, I don't ever get caught scrolling on the watch.
0: Yeah, that's a big thing for us, too, is whenever you get a phone call, it's easier to get distracted. Oh, I have a red dot. Let me figure out what this badge or notification is.
1: Yeah. And Eric makes a great point. AirPods are crazy good. Like, yes. literally, they'll connect to the Apple TV, my computer, my watch, yes. my phone, like, dynamically. But yes. I had one issue with them the other day. I was talking on the phone with my buddy on my AirPods, and my wife opened hers, and the call transferred oh. to my wife's AirPods.
0: Yes, good. I had an issue the other day. I shouldn't admit to this. I was on a call and I got a notification on my phone. And I was like, I'm just going to quietly look at this during this call. And Ooh. my headphones <laughs> transferred to my phone. And then it's Ooh. like I dropped the call and I was like, oh, goodness. <laughs> <Can't leave> that. <laughs> you do have to be careful. Yeah. But it is great when it works. I love traveling with my AirPods. I have the Pros, and the noise cancellation on the flight makes all the difference.
1: I will say for as good as the noise cancellation is on the AirPod Pros, it still can't beat over the ear Mm -hmm. headphones. So like these are a step above Mm -hmm. the AirPods, but for what they are and earbuds, what they can do is like really impressive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And those take up a lot more space when you're traveling.
1: They do. Yeah. But like to me, it is worth it, especially Mm -hmm. specifically for the plane. Pretty much any other time the AirPods are like totally sufficient.
0: Okay, cool. And then uh, what would you like to plug? Murphy? Uh,
1: no, Murphy, that's an old <laughs> app for sure. That's an old app. I want to plug my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Brad I crossed a thousand followers. Woo-hoo! And I've only got about a thousand more watch hours. So awesome. I'm recommitting myself to that this year. I want to get monetized. And so look out, there's going to be new YouTube videos there, probably on Remix, probably on Tailwind, stuff like that. So. Awesome. I'll drop the link here in the chat.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to pick something that this is going to be like an interesting one. (laughs) So I tweeted a few weeks ago. You can tell how busy I am based on how many drinks I have at my desk. Non-alcoholic drinks, I should say, since I'm working. uh uh But tons of coffee cups and things like that. But I have different cup cup holders, placeholders, not cup holders, that you put down why is this word weird to me? It's not no, a cup. like, I, what, is it? It what is it? What we, uh, I know. Right. Oh, you have a special one. It's my, your yeah, logo my, on it.
1: My dad made this one.
0: That's awesome. Like yeah, actually really burnt cool. it in. I'll we'll have to um, include a picture in the show notes.
1: It's he, he like hollowed out these sections and then like, what? um, put like a silicone, something, something in there. And yeah. Contact me. Coaster. Coasters. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Why are your words so hard? It's because we're at the end of the show. Thank you, Trevor, <laughs> for really indebted. So my favorite coaster that I have on my desk is a floppy disk. <laughs> and what makes this fun... and it's I'm It's a sure real th-
1: floppy disk. It's, it's not a like real a floppy fake, disk. funny... Okay, so, yeah.
0: Well, and what's fun about this one... Actually, this has copyright 2022 on it. I went to a conference and Interval was giving these away as like their giveaway thing and their boot up for what they do. It says it's a front endless framework for building internal applications. So they're getting free advertising. This worked well, but they said that their product, the bootable is on here. And I'm like, I don't even have a way to <laughs> stick that into a computer. I don't yeah. have a computer with a floppy, but anyways, it is the best coaster. Thank you, Trevor. the best coaster that I have. So I'm going to take awesome. that. So if you're trying to re, if you have, I don't know, go to a flea market or a garage sale and people have floppies. They are great coasters. So, and then for my pick, since we've mentioned it a couple of times already, I'm going to pick the everything Svelte course and we can include a link to that. But this is a course that talks through everything that you would possibly want to know when it comes to building an application, a full stack application within Svelte. So we style it with Tailwind we have a Stripe integration working on it. We're connecting it to Supabase. There's authentication involved. We talk about front-end auth. We talk about authentication on the server. If you sign up for the complete tier, it also covers testing and sending emails and running cron jobs with GitHub Actions. So it covers a ton of stuff. So go check it out at everythingspelt.com. And if you're a student, I do have student discounts. So cool. Well, this has been fun. <laughs> It was a good one. James should go away more often. (laughs) 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 Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for sticking around. We appreciate the support. Appreciate the conversation. The chat was fantastic. Feel free to continue that conversation on Twitter. You can tweet at me at self-teach me or compressed FM and Brad, you're Brad Garapy, right? That's right. Yep. Awesome. So for now, that's all we got.